Welcome to the Roll Down Podcast, hosted live on Twitch every Tuesday night. Now, here's your hosts, Cutler and Saul! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Roll Down Podcast. It's cold in Australia. It is so cold right now that Sol has a cold. My name is Cutler. It's great to see you. And I'm, of course, joined by my wonderful co-host, Sol. How are you? Uh, it's good to be here. Yes. Hopefully I don't die. Yes. <laughs> Guys, we've got a heavy hitter on today's show. Uh, we feel like we're saying that quite a lot these days, but we have an absolute titan of the EU TFT industry scene. The main man, some have called him, or maybe I'll call him that. <laughs> It is I think it's only you. Yeah, just me. But I'm trying to make it happen, and I'm really pleased to welcome Panda to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Yeah, one of the reference podcasts in TFT, so happy, happy to make it on the show as well. Guys, uh, really, it's going to be an all-EU show. It's going to be an action-packed show. Not only are Sol and I going to learn a lot about a, a region that we feel everybody should know a lot more about, but we're hoping that you guys do learn a lot as well. First, I want to start, of course, with you, Panda. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into TFT, um, where you got the sort of the drive to, to work in this industry from. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been involved with gaming since I was pretty young, my teenage years, so 14, 15, uh, with Call of Duty, actually doing like gameplay videos when the YouTube gaming craze started. Um, and I learned that you could actually make money uh, doing game-related stuff, so I kind of tried to find avenues to, to do that. I started marketing and advertisement, which I wanted to lead into esports in some way, not in the way that I thought. Uh, the whole casting stuff was kind of a surprise when I was playing Gwent, uh, the Witcher card game, uh, like five years ago, and just had kind of a snowball of opportunities and ended up making it uh, my full-time thing. And TFT started uh, casting-wise in set six, uh, so last November with the Gigitech, the, the Spanish production company that runs everything in EU for, for Riot. And I was already working with them in Runeterra, in Riot's card game. So it was a pretty seamless transition, especially considering I love TFT. I had played since set one, but not really very seriously compared to what I usually play games at because I'm quite competitive. Set three a bit, I got the challenger, but then set four and five didn't play at all because I was more involved with Runeterra and casting that. But I came back for set six, and I think I was very lucky because set six was pretty amazing, and I got right into the whole casting shenanigans. So it was, it was, yeah, everything lined up perfectly, and, and really happy to be involved now with TFT to the level that I am. Always nice to hear we got another card game person. Both Soul and I's background <laughs> are in card games. We talk about that uh-huh. pretty much on every podcast. Uh, Soul comes from mm-hmm. a magic background. Uh, in fact, we can actually give away right now that Seoul is coming up to where I live very soon for a Magic tournament. Ooh. We're going to be doing a, a live episode of the podcast, which is very exciting. So that mm-hmm. is a bit of a yep. tangent. That'll be a good times. I want to talk more about um, that transition, however, because I think as two people that have readily done the card game to TFT transition, where do you think that the sort of similarities lie between those two kinds of skill sets? I think the, the it's I mean it's the same genre, right? Strategy games, card games. There's a lot of the same skill sets, analytical skills. You know, kind of seeing where value is, seeing kind of value over time. I think a lot of it is pretty interchangeable, and we've seen a lot of card game players uh, come to TFT, and and you know vice versa. With for example, Alan ZQ, uh, Polish player, and and was very uh, well known in the streaming scene in TFT when it started off in set one, two, and three. Transitions to Runeterra, 
he's a world champion for Runeterra right now. So, I mean, it, I think it's pretty interchangeable, that skill set. Casting-wise, it might be a little bit different because TFT does have a bit more of the kind of play-by-play structure that card games obviously do not have whatsoever. Card games are very much analytical, very much much more slower-paced casting, whereas TFT has an opportunity or has a window where you can go a bit more play-by-play. And I think it's debatable whether uh, it's correct or not for TFT right now, but uh, there's a chance to kind of have that, that side of casting as well, which I think is, is interesting. And for me, um, pretty cool compared to card games. Card games are very, I think, slow-paced, so having the chance to be a bit more out there with the casting is nice for TFT, I think. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you on that one. Um, uh, talking a little bit about the production side of TFT and, and that sort of area, it'd be really nice to hear from, from your own perspective uh, as someone that's worked on all these great events, especially in Europe. Uh, we ask this question quite a lot for those um, who are involved in, in this area of TFT when they come on the show. What is it about mm-hmm. TFT events that, that you personally think can be improved upon what do you think they do well what do you think uh of tf i know you mentioned that tft casting is very different to card games but why do you Mm -hmm. think that that is and and what do you think makes tft casting so interesting it's a whole different beast and it's really hard to unpack i think we're still at a very you know baby step phase of uh what tft casting might look like and what the optimal way to, to produce a show for it is because there's eight players uh there's eight different perspectives there's uh, obviously, the idea of like certain players wanting to watch one player, uh, or certain viewers rather wanting to watch one player because it's you know their streamer, or the player they're tuning in for, and how to you know allow them to do that um, without kind of it, having like to follow one perspective throughout the whole game. And the observing side of it is also very difficult, I think. So I think there's still a lot to unpack. I've heard uh, you know ideas before on Reddit and in different you know podcasts and stuff about having like a poker like uh, you know setup especially if like land events come into play where you have like eight players at a table and there's like the bluffing aspect of it as well and kind of the interactive aspect between players. But for online events, I think we're still finding ways uh, to, to make it the best show possible. Um, but it really depends on so many different, you know, having to use like different features on Twitch. I know Apex Legends, for example, has like a, a certain way you can tune into players' spots uh, from the main tournament page. And that's something that could work on TFT, for example. Um, I think Mordok Madness was a very interesting uh, tournament that I casted recently because of the way the comms were open kind of with the different teams and that allowed a whole different level of insight for viewers and all players were streaming so you could tune into their, their streams and, and kind of watch who you wanted to. Um, and the main like the main tournament stream for TFT is very, I think, like decentralized where it's not really uh, the main star of the, the, the show when a big tournament comes in. If you're watching an NA tournament and Soju's playing in it, you're probably going to be watching Soju stream and not the main broadcast. And I think that's something that's hard for casters and production teams to uh, accept, maybe, because it's not usually like this in other esports and in other kind of shows. So I think there's still a lot to uh, unpack and kind of solve still with, with the production on TFT events. Yeah, really interesting point you bring up there. Um... Uh, to use, uh, I know that not every TFT player will appreciate this, but I'm going to use a sports analogy. Um, and that is surrounding sort of Formula One, whereas mm-hmm. it's a very, it's a very person-based sport. It's a, it's a sport mm-hmm. that has a lot of big personalities. People tune in specifically to see the personalities of singular players. And there's a lot of uh, hype surrounding these rivalries, player between player, person v person, uh, world champion v up up and coming youngster, old veteran, mm-hmm. 
Um, I think the way that F1 does it, of course, is so different because it's a sport, but I find it absolutely fascinating that we, we sort of see a very similar thing with TFT that we don't see anywhere else. Um, so from, from your perspective, I know that we've talked about this quite a lot, but why do you think that people specifically tune into the players that they want to tune into? Mm, I think that, like, it, I mean, it gives them so, sort of something, I guess, on a personal level to root for, if that makes sense, rather than rooting for, like, a greater, I guess, entity. Uh, that would normally come from like you know like games that are like team sports, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's like, I think part of it also, especially in the context of TFT, is like the the streaming culture. Um, you know, you have players who sort of ardently let's use Soju as an example, right? You have players who, and people who are ardently sort of tune in to Soju stream every single day. Um, they sort of follow that whole journey. Uh, you know, of Soju playing ladder every day through the actual twenty. Um, and you know going on that journey i guess makes it so that like you know they, they they get a big sort of sense of investment out of it and um it makes it so that like you uh the the, the, the you know the players wins you know feel so much sweeter and their defeats feel so much more brutal you know and mm -hmm. i think a lot of people really like that and then you know to, to compound that right um they get to see a lot of the sort of you know interplay of rivalry between you know different factions and everything and then that sort of all comes to collide at these big sort of tournaments right I think like, that's part of the draw to it. That's what sort of people really enjoy about like following these sorts of storylines. Yeah, really, really, really good point there. Um, speaking of streaming, I mean, our topic, of course, is EU-focused today. And really, we're going to sort of allow Panda to, to kind of lead the conversation here at some points because we aren't as clued in as you know as as we possibly could be but you know at the end of the day tft is a big game with with many important regions and many big storylines going on at all times panda i was wondering and i know this might be a little bit of a big ask but is it possible for you to sort of break down a couple of the biggest eu players streamers who they are where they're from those kind of things yeah, for sure. Um, I think the EU scene is dominated by a few countries specifically, and then it kind of narrows down. But especially it's not dominated by kind of the biggest streamers are all streaming in their own languages. Um, EU is a very kind of compartmentalized region where it's not just English being spoken and, and all the big streamers are, you know, speaking and, and creating content in English. It is a case in many esports where, you know, English is kind of the universal language. Uh, content creators are trying to, to you know, reach as many people as possible and it's normal to do content in english if you look at league of legends you look at you know most esports and sports it is this way but um for many reasons tft it isn't the case the biggest streamers are streaming their language there's very big national communities especially in places like france for example that's the biggest example uh spain i think now as well germany to some extent with people like solo Sang, um and even italy you know a few other countries as well but the biggest streamers are all streaming in their new languages so france you have sean for example you have i'm so fresh you have all the, the big pro players that are also big content creators as well. So you need Padable, um, kind of all the big names from like Aegis uh, and, and the big teams, really. Um, in Spain, you have also an interesting uh, situation because uh, they're growing a lot right now. But the biggest two factors, I think, are a content creator called Manute. He's represents Giants Gaming. Uh, esports already has been around in many different esports. And he's more of a content creator. He, he plays at a high level, but not a pro player level. He doesn't aim to compete. He's, he's like a fully content creator uh, doing you know, all, all kinds of social medias and, and TikTok and, and league-related content as well. 
but he brings a lot of viewers that maybe wouldn't be watching TFC normally because he's so involved in TFC and it's a big passion for him, it seems. He's even, he kind of organized the national team uh, that, that is happening now in Spain. So he picked out like eight of the best players in Spain. They're going to be boot camping at different places in, in France and so on. But the set, and there's a very like strong community where the top creators and top players in Spain are very, very good friends as well. Right now, Snootyboo, who I think is the, the most consistent uh, Spanish streamer, usually hovers around like one to four or five K viewers. Also, just always top 10 EU's ladder. So, I mean, very well-known player. Doesn't have the same tournament success, but just very well-known player and streamer. He's currently at uh, Baby Guana's house, another big Spanish player in uh, Valencia on the coast of Spain. And they're just boot camping together. because They're just very, very good friends. So, this allows for a lot of kind of uh, intermingling between different communities. And it really propped up the Spanish scene a lot, going to Set7, for example. Um, and it's a case in other countries as well. So, Logosang is a big streamer for Germany. And also kind of hovers in like 1 to 3K range. We have Daysick, we have uh, just all the, I think, names that most people know. Um, but yeah, it is English streamers, there's not many. It, it's really Alex Sam and a few others, uh, Daysick as well, of course, but usually it's players streaming in their own language. Yeah, uh, you brought up a lot of fantastic points there. I would I would also like to say, like, we were introduced to Minute because we watched mm -hmm. the Spanish language broadcast to see some Worlds groups during our Worlds mm -hmm. Watch Party. That's mm -hmm. basically the the way that we sort of got into a little bit more understanding about EU TFT. And I, I think that is probably the case for a lot of people where I know for us, we couldn't find any VODs of some of the OCE players. So we had to go and look mm -hmm. at certain, had to go and look at a Chinese stream and then the EU stream, the Spanish language stream, you know, to do these kind of things. It, it is very mm -hmm. multicultural. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you did bring up a, a, a really interesting point there, something that when we were researching, and certainly when I was going through and, and really, really delving deep into a lot of these EU streamers, it is such a, much like Europe itself, it is such a, a melting pot of languages and cultures and passions, you know, mm -hmm. two to one, two, three, four languages being spoken in any one stream and at any one time. Do you think that potentially, as you mentioned, the, the friendships are growing, the community is growing. Do you think that we're going to see that bleed over into a more sort of OCNA sort of market? Do you think we're going to be starting to see a bit more crossover there going forward? I would love for that to be the case. I'm not so sure uh, it is. I think there's a lot of like national and regional pride where players and just overall you feel very comfortable uh, with people from your own country people speaking your own language you have this you know automatic affinity i think um and you want you you have this idea like oh i'm a spanish person i want to you know i want to do well i'm going to you know talk to a lot of spanish players and this can be a very good thing i think it creates these like very tight-knit communities um that, that have a lot of overlap between each other so all the french players and content players are constantly growing because there's just this massive pool of viewers from you know the involvement of big orgs like Carmen uh, Core, for example, um, and just overall the French esports scene is very passionate in really any game uh, compared to the population. I think it's just a, a weird kind of outlier. Um, but ideally, there would be crossover between all these huge Spanish streamers and, and players that have their Spanish viewers that also, I assume, know some English and, and can you know get involved with other communities. And French players, for example, if there was a, like more crossover there, it would just create. I think so much more viewership and so much more engagement. So it's something that isn't happening now. I think it could happen in the future and it would help to have uh, top players from each of these countries saying, hey, let's, we're all very, very good at the game. We're all top 20 EU West. Let's actually sit down before Worlds and, and prep together for two weeks and, and you know, 
set aside maybe you know past the the regional finals in EU this this set maybe set aside kind of those those national cliques that you're in normally and actually uh work together and and yeah be more like an a be more like oce in that regard i think it would be a huge benefit but i don't think it's likely i think it's just you know it's too tight in right now where the national community are so um involved together that it's it's hard to break out of that and, and want to you know uh, prep or, or even you know do content with other other countries i think yeah uh and you know as someone from the uk originally like i, I can certainly say how how much of a melting pot european countries are mm -hmm. when they when there is national pride on the line as i'm sure mm -hmm. you're well aware mm -hmm. there is certainly such a um such a pride in, in representing your country well wherever you are i think it's yeah. uh, a really interesting point that you bring up as well about the uh the power of working together and um you know we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about eu versus na we're not gonna talk about what like performance or memes or anything like that what i really want to dig into and what i really want to ask you is uh how eu has received over the last few years a certain amount of hype going into events mm -hmm. and potentially there's a maybe there's outliers maybe there's no maybe there aren't significant reasons why the events haven't gone in their favor uh, for you personally, where do you rank sort of EU TFT in the pantheon of, of great TFT players and regions? I think it's pretty high up there. I think TFT, especially like in a world's tournament, there's still a very small sample size. I think it's hard to really pull, uh, you know, exact conclusions from a tournament like Worlds. Obviously, EU didn't perform last set, but... And you can obviously there's the memes and there's the, you know, a lot of people flaming you and all this and that's completely acceptable uh, that's you know the whole thing with esports and competition and trash talking it's something that you have to know exists and and i mean you have to know yourself if you should take it seriously or not i think there wasn't a big enough sample size at worlds and also a few more factual i think a lot of eu players didn't prepare properly for worlds uh compared to uh, the level that i saw from them in other tournaments but I think China is probably further ahead, just very big population, uh, very streamlined, I think, uh, region for, for competition and just, you know, the way they constantly improve and constantly are kind of a little bit ahead of everyone else. I think they're just able to take it a little bit more seriously than other regions and they just have, you know, more numbers, more population means, you know, more good players and just a bigger pool uh, to, to kind of choose from. And the rest of the way, I think NA and EU are pretty similar. Uh, I think it's not a big difference. And then there might be a, a small jump down to, to other smaller regions like OC and Brazil and, and Latin America. Um, but not a really big one, I think. I think the biggest thing is more just the, the distribution of players. You know, uh, Smaller regions have also very good players, but there's just less population, so there's less of them. And as you go up, it's you know, EU and NA, bigger regions, more very good players, and then a lot of good players, but not very good players. And China, maybe most population, uh, they have the biggest chance uh, statistically to have a lot of very, very good players and just a very big pool to choose from for, for big events. So I think that's the main thing. I think it's hard to say, you know, a region is very much, you know, further ahead because there's just not that much sample size of tournaments, uh, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think when I compare it to other Riot properties, I mean, specifically League of Legends, something that I certainly grew up watching and, and taking an interest in. You know, there was a big separation between the regions for such a long time until they mm -hmm. really put a lot of effort and emphasis on bridging the gap with more international events. I think it's something that TFT would benefit from greatly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely more 
um, mid-season type events, uh, top ladder events between certain regions. I understand that it's a very difficult thing for them to do because there is um, not a lot of time in the in the sets and not a lot of time in the calendar to really put a lot of this stuff together. But I think um, it would do really well. So as someone who has played on one of the 40,000 Chinese super servers before, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the chi like the Chinese like format, the structure, and and why you think they they're probably so far ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely, obviously. I mean, the uh, the most obvious thing is obviously the region is just gigantic, right? You have uh, so many players. Um, as uh, as Pat said earlier, you have such a huge pool of talent to go from. Uh, I think the other probably really big thing in China that like sort of gives them that huge edge is also that TFT is just a lot more legitimate as an eSport there. Mm -hmm. um, the funding re really is there um, in China. Um, like, for example, like, players are literally financially incentivized to play ladder. Um, mm -hmm. like, only, like, only, like, top 10 of, like, Chinese ladder get, like, weekly payments. Something like really? that. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty nutty. Um, it's, like, something, something I think that the amount quoted to me was, like, 2,000 USD or something for, like, whoever holds rank one for a mm -hmm. week. Chinese letter. Now, granted, this is a ladder of like you know several million people, so it's mm -hmm, not an easy mm -hmm, thing to mm -hmm, do. Mm -hmm. But you're good enough. You can make a living playing just just playing ladder in China. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these players also supplement the, that income, you know, via streaming on like uh, you know Chinese streaming websites like uh, Huya or Douyu. Mm -hmm. Um So you know all this combined with the fact that you know there's about I think like 16 different servers on China, uh, make it so that uh, really you, the cream ends up sort of rising to the top. And then finally, you have the whole, uh, China has a very sort of nationalistic mindset when it comes to any form of, any form of competition. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little sort of, especially when it comes to these sort of world style events, very little um, inter-region inter rivalry. Mm -hmm. um, they're very much like, we are, we, are, we are there to represent you know, China as a country. Um, we win and lose as a country, right? Like they'll happily, they happily grief some guy yeah. just so like their teammate, just so like one of one of their fellow countrymen, you know, has a better chance of a better placement. As an example, whereas uh, I think players from other regions maybe uh, less, less, you know, less less willing to do so. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, for, I think for those reasons, you know, all those reasons listed, um, that's sort of why we've seen China really, really pull ahead of the curve uh, in in uh, competitive compared to the uh, other regions. I think it comes down to like incentives as well. I mean, like you're mentioning the, the cash prizes for for being top of ladder. I mean, yeah. it's like this, and we're seeing it now. There was a case a lot of set six with different like regional leagues in Europe, like the Ultraliga in Poland. When they're having to have like snapshots on ladder, you see all the Polish players in the top twenty all of a sudden because they're all they have something to grind for. For example, uh, and it's one of the biggest things as well that, that uh, yeah, China is pulled ahead, and other countries or other regions are maybe not finding that same because they're just TFT isn't big enough maybe to to lure the top top players to to grind really seriously and hey like Soju etc or like the, to really take the game to the next level outside of like the week before the qualifications of this big tournament etc uh, and that's I think slows down a lot of the rate at which the game is kind of solved and the rate at which kind of uh, Whenever there's competition and there's incentives and you mix both of these together, it constantly makes the the game, uh, the level of, of TFT just increase. You know, over time, the more incentives, the more reason you have. If there was a one million dollar prize pool, I guarantee you, very very bright minds from other esports might even come to TFT and and yep. help further the esport uh, to the point where it's being played at a high level. Same with like any other major esport. 
you're comparing what's being done now to like micro and macro level um, and what's at the, the absolute minimum in terms of preparation for events, et cetera, like league compared to season three or season four, it's a world of difference because incentives have grown and, and the reason to try and squeeze out any advantage um, has, has kind of grown over time. Whereas TFT, it's maybe not the case yet. A lot of players can't make a full-time living out of it, can't really spend 12 hours a day uh, playing TFT, have to supplement it with like a different kind of uh, academic route or, or you know full-time job kind of route. So that's where, yeah, I think China is going to have, is going to pull ahead and really any scene, I think the French scene as well is, is now also able to support players full-time. There's a lot of different orgs pumping in money and investment, and that allows for uh, the competition to just grow and have the incentive to really uh, continue improving uh, over time much more quickly than other regions, I think. Yeah, great to hear that there's yeah. a lot of uh, monetary interest in TFT over in Europe as well, especially right now. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the tournament structure going on over in EU at the moment. You know, as always, these things are very... Um, they're subject to change in a lot of ways where, where they've really mm -hmm. started to take a lot of feedback from the players in every big community and, and and how to make these formats viable for as many people as possible. So I wondering if you wouldn't mind giving, uh, because we will go and talk about the Open Qualifiers quite soon, the EU Open Qualifiers, but I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving a quick rundown of, of sort of how the tournament structure is, is run in EU. Yeah, there's three big tournaments per set called Golden Spatula Cups that are kind of just at, you know, uh, the the first one is now uh, next weekend. The open qualifier for this last weekend. An open qualifier precedes each of these golden pass golden cups. You can qualify to the cups through ladder if you're top sixty challenger over two snapshots. You directly qualify, or through open qualifiers, which is like five hundred you know, something player events. You qualify through just signing up as long as you're diamond two or above, um, with some weighted preference towards challenger or grandmaster. Or, you know, depending on your rank is, you get kind of more ballots in, in the sign-up because it is does get full very quickly so it's kind of like a lottery system and uh basically we have uh yeah these tournaments there's a super bowl tournament which is like a, a national uh country-based thing where all the regional leagues in europe so spanish the spain has its own regional league france now uh has the, the hex league i think it's called this set poland has its ultra liga has a very good uh, esports structure from a national perspective as well. Um, Italy had its own thing. Kind of all the different regions have now their own qualifiers, and uh, those regional qualifiers qualify at Super Bowl, which is kind of a, a not team-based but kind of nation-based tournament. Um, and all that leads up to the the regional finals, uh, which end up happening you know close to the end of the set, and then Worlds and maybe the last chance qualifier. But that's really that's the most of it. And the regional finals you qualify through ladder. Uh, just straight up snapshots all throughout the, the two parts of the set, the half set and this set now. And Golden Classic Cup winners make it through, and you earn points on your placement in different Golden Classic Cups. And then the top point earners for the different the three different tournaments also make it through. So there's a lot of different avenues to qualify. You cannot do any tournaments and just do straight up ladder. And if you're a beast of the game, you can 100% guarantee you're going to make it through. Or uh, you can just not do ladder at all and just qualify through open qualifiers. I know Aka Wonder, one of the Spanish players, um, he played in every single tournament we broadcast the last set. He does wasn't really grinding top of ladder. He wasn't really making it in those top sixty or top ten spots. And he still made. He was the only player that made it. The only Spanish player that made it to regional finals because he guaranteed a spot through Golden Fast Cup points. And he was very consistent in that regard. So if you have a, a skill set that favors tournament play more than ladder play, you have the option to do that and vice versa. So I think it's pretty well uh, done right now. I think 
it's been very polished over set six and now set seven as well. And, you know, admin work and I think old players are, are pretty happy with the current results, I think. Yeah, really cool to see that there's such a... Uh... I was going to say... Yeah, sorry. Could I quickly interrupt? Sorry, sorry. Sorry to interrupt like that. No, just while we're sort of on that point, um, that's like, well, like a really I guess, interesting question that I wanted to ask about um, just the general sort of sentiment on an apply in EU. Um, it's interesting because like EU's sort of such a such a huge region, right? Um, that consists of so many, you know, so many countries, so many, you know, so many interconnected places. Um, I was curious in terms of like how seriously, I guess, players sort of take a lot of, if that makes sense. Like obviously, a lot of people have heard about the sort of a lot of people know about the whole Disneyland meme about ladder mm-hmm. and like NA. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, a lot of the NA players, for example, don't like don't take ladder play very seriously, if at yeah. all. Um, so I guess I was curious to to know sort of like how how seriously the EU sort of play, uh, uh, competitive players take ladder. There's like very important thresholds at which ladder matters a lot, and if you're in a certain different bracket, certainly it doesn't matter at all. But I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, if you're fighting for like top twenty spots, you're fighting one to guarantee you're in. Uh, directly to Golden Classic Cups, qualifying to ladder, so the top 60 spots over two snapshots, which is fairly easy for like the top, top players who are like always hovering in the top 20. Um, so that's pretty much a guarantee. But the biggest spot is the direct qualification to regional finals through ladder spots. And that's like, I think maybe 12 to 15 players qualify directly through ladder. There's the average uh, spot in different snapshots for set seven in this case, and then set 7.5, and those would be the two things. So if you're fighting for those spots, it's very intense. You're seeing, you know, every day, like today, for example, it's Tuesday. The snapshot happens uh, at midnight. All the Spanish players are in the top 10. So Snooty Boo, uh, Reven, uh, you know, a few others are trying to make it into that top 10. They're still kind of on all the snapshots in that top 10, top 20 spots. It matters a lot. If you're below that, where you're not really fighting for to, to qualify directly to the regional finals through ladder, um, and you're just trying to make it to Golden Classic Cups, the, top, the first, like, 60 make it. So... You can just camp when you're top 40, top 50, and for most very good players, it's also fine. And then going under that, it doesn't really matter as much. It's, it's kind of more weighted towards the lottery spots for open qualifiers. Other than that, it's not super relevant. So it really depends on like the brackets. You know, for me, for example, I make it to Masters and I'm just chilling. I don't really have a reason to play more unless I really like the pass and I really feel like the urge to keep playing the game. And then I, that's when I try and push for like Challenger, for example, like last set. Uh, but right now. Uh, I'm not super in love with the current meta and how the game plays out, so I don't really have a reason to scam game and, and to really favor playing ladder. Obviously, I'm not competing anyway, but I think there are many players like me who don't see themselves in the top 60 uh, in Challenger, don't see themselves uh, really pushing uh, ladder-wise, so they just are content to be above Diamond 2 and just play open qualifiers and try and uh, make a name for themselves through just a good tournament, for example. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's it's almost sort of polarizing in ways, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. you either are full sweat, full try hard, you know, like eight ten hours a day, or it's like okay, cool, I'll play my ten k games today. There is one more <laughs> mention: the the regional leagues they do have their own like snapshots, and they do have like the and their own maybe timings for the snapshots. So like I was saying last set, for example, the Ultra Liga, which is the the Polish national league. Um, doing well there, qualified you to the Super Bowl, for example. Um, it did matter a bit. And obviously, the national pride of like, hey, I'm the best player in Poland, or I'm in the top eight players as well. It was like a LAN event as well here in Warsaw. Um, so they might have different kind of moments where all these players from this certain country, you suddenly see top 20 full of French players or full of, of Polish players. It might be because there's a snapshot for their regional league. And that's another incentive, another way to keep players. Uh, sharp and, and playing at a very high level as well. And I think that's why uh, players like Royson, uh, yeah. last set, 
came out of nowhere and did really, really well because I think the Polish uh, National League is set up in a way that it, it really incentivizes uh, players to, to play a lot and to compete at a very high level and to, to perform better than they would if they didn't have incentives, for example. That's super, super unique sort of aspect of EU, <laughs> the idea of just the ladder just being seasonally dominated by different countries <laughs> at sort of different points in the, in the season, right? That's, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I think we um, we see quite a lot of similarities uh, when you were talking about sort of players that go for the open qualifiers and players that really try extremely hard on ladder. I think we mm-hmm. see a little bit of similar a similar trend in in OCE here as well. Uh, you sort of because it's such a a small region comparatively speaking to the to the rest of the world, you often get. Uh, the same players in Challenger pretty much all the time, and then mm-hmm. uh, unless you really have the the spare time to commit to a grind or commit to to really pushing yourself higher and higher, a lot of players are really just content to sort of sit where they are and then and then go for the open qualifier route. Um, mm-hmm. We have a lot of we have an open qualifier coming up this weekend in OC two as mm-hmm. well, I believe. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of TFT esports and tournament play coming up which brings us into talking about tft itself the game mm-hmm. right now oh shit i didn't think we would yeah <laughs> uh look to be honest and i'm gonna get this out of the way first and i don't want you guys to come at me i haven't played that much tft i've played about 20 games or something on this patch it's not that much compared to some people out there but we did what yeah, i watched i played like five I watched about thirty hours worth of EU games in the last three days, just to, just to make sure that we were ready for this. So uh, we are going to talk a little bit about EU specifically. It is the most recent tournament that we've seen, so we have a pretty good idea of where players are leaning, what's good. Certainly, some differences, similarities, and where we can find that. Panda, first of all, I would love it if you sort of talked us through exactly what happened over the last weekend with the the open qualifier uh we had like i mentioned 500 or so players uh, starting off on saturday that's uh reduced down to 128 on sunday and then the final day was 64 players and out of those 64 32 uh would make it to go to pass a cup next weekend uh and yeah we'll guarantee their their spot in the tournament, that's kind of the, the, the big thing. Open qualifiers don't serve any other purpose than just funneling into the Gold Classic Cup. That's coming up next weekend. Um, we have a list, actually, with the names that did make it through. Uh, there weren't any official broadcasts because compared to the set six, we changed the way we're doing it now for set seven. Instead of doing, we used to do the final day of open qualifiers, uh, which is a Monday, and the final day of the Gold Classic Cup, so two days total. Now we're doing the three broadcast days of Gold Classic Cup, so from day one onwards, and it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday now. And we're not broadcasting the open qualifiers at all. So that's just player stream. So it was a bit harder to kind of uh, stay up to date with what was happening throughout the day. But you could follow, you know, players like Sproyson and Leduc, et cetera, and see what they were doing. And it was a, the, the score sheet as well. You could kind of follow through. Um, looking at the names, I think uh, a lot of the names that you expected to make it through, looking at top 64, did. Um, if you're not super into the the, the the European scene, you might not know every single name, but I, you know, just from casting all the tournaments last night, I know pretty much everyone that qualified, basically. Um, a lot of French players at the top, TLT and Aware, players were kind of around the, the you know, pretty much all the open qualified tournaments in the Kaiser Cups uh, the last set. Sproysen, a Polish player, who I was expecting would make it through, he did. Canvas as well from Carmen Core, uh, 
the old 61's cousin, also made it through. Ice Loom, who organized the, the world's mock-up tournament, also made it through from Italy. Um, New from Turkey, uh, Blaz from Serbia made it through. Just all the names you would expect, in, in my opinion. Bricks as well from Tunisia. Um, Aki, who was also very good last, last set, also from Poland. The ones that didn't make it through was maybe the, the more surprising to look at. Like Duck didn't make it through in the end. He just barely missed out. And overall, that's it. Um, I think from the, the names that I expected, maybe Solkiso as well. He's a, a Spanish player, but um, I think a lot of the big names did make it through, which I think is always going to be good. I was, you know, if Sporting doesn't make it through, I would be very sad because he was like one of the most, he won a Golden Pass Cup last set and also just very consistent. Like, I can wonder, he was in all the open qualifiers, all the tournaments we cast, and he was always doing very, very well. So, player wise, I think that that's, yeah, nothing too surprising. And they'll join all the huge names, of course, that are already qualified through the, through the ladder snapshot, basically. I'm uh, pleased you mentioned the duck because his was one of the POVs that I watched of the tournament. Mm -hmm. So that's really handy Likewise. when um, going through it and talking about some of this stuff. Um, I'll start with you, Sol. I know you said you haven't played like a significant amount of games right now, but mm. sort of using common sense, they buffed Siphon, they buffed a lot, yep. they like, changed, they nerfed a lot of the problematic stuff that wasn't Dragons. <sighs> And uh, mm. ever since then, and now we're just left with a bunch of dragons. We're seeing a bunch of dragons, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, your thoughts uh. right now on the meta is—is is that why you're not playing right now? Do you are you not a fan of this? Patch? Um. No. I, I, in fact, if anything, I think I'm probably going to play some games after the pod. Um, I've just been busy with our life, so I haven't been able to log as much uh, volume as I normally would be able to. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think the patches. Well, it's kind of weird because I, I I think it actually is a little bit yeah it feels a little bit better than previous patches because I personally think that like the dragons were a little bit disappointing in some older patches. Um, I like that you know these sort of flashy expensive units are sort of what you want to play around. Um, intuitively it makes sense. It's that's it's sort of half the set's mechanic, right? I do think, however, that like a potentially uh, I I think that like one of the bigger issues, right? Um, that's like everything very commonly said, and I think is very valid. Is that um, currently they show up too frequently on stage three? Um, they're far too mid game warping, and I tend to agree with that sentiment. Um, I think that like uh, the fact that you know it's a, it's an eight cost. Uh, if we're thinking about the uh, you know if we're thinking about the, the you know the four cost tier ones, the fact that it's eight cost uh, essentially means that you know uh, you have you you know in in terms of like gold efficiency, gold value, you have you know basically two thirds of a two star unit just from one unit shop in your shop. So that's sort of like low commitment on your part to hitting that. Um, I think it's very, 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 very warping. Combined with the fact that like um, Jones is really good. <laughs> like uh, I mean, like I Ida's is super strong. She is super strong. Siphon is now really strong. Um, Dejas more very dependent, but still very strong. Um, yeah. So I I think that, that like um, a potential fix would be to sort of adjust. Uh, a separate sort of odd occurrence rate for the dragons, sort of similar to what they did in set four with uh, chosen, um, where they don't obey the exact same rules for showing up as you know your regular sort of forecast ships do. Like something like that. Um, once like something like that is like implemented, I think it'd be very good. I think that like um, people don't really have an issue, at least in like from the plays I've talked to, from the streams I've watched. Um, it's not so much like the stage four, stage five stuff with like player and dragons and stuff that's really the issue. Mostly how crazy they can snowball a game out of control on stage three. But yeah. Yeah, really good points there. Listen, Panda, I want to come to you when, when I ask this question. We have a lot of tournaments in TFT on a patch or in a time where the game is not at its most perfectly balanced state. 
-hmm. from your perspective, uh, what are some of the things that you think we can learn from a tournament when the game is maybe a lit like there's a lot of discussion about where the level of the game is at that point? I think it just, you know, players really are able to highlight the problems a lot because you're playing for everything. You kind of have solved, you know, at the end of the day, strategy games and, you know, card games, in my experience, and TFT, I think, as well, is trying to find the most broken or the most unfair or the thing that's giving you the most value for what you're doing, where it shouldn't be, where it's going to get balanced. You know, ideally, before a nerf happens or before a patch happens, you should have been playing that thing a lot because it's a thing that's going to give you the most value overall. TFT kind of balances itself with the you know shared pool of champions, and you can't all do the same thing, obviously, compared to card games. But overall, players are going to try and highlight the most broken and the most unbalanced things and are going to try and abuse that to some extent, obviously, um, which I think we're seeing. You know, it's it, it completely warps, as, as, as Sol mentioned, kind of the, the way the game is played to some extent, where players are um, pre-leveling in certain spots they wouldn't normally. They're doing things that are fundamentally against what TFT was like in set six maybe or, or previous sets because the game is this way you have to adapt to the the rules and and kind of the things the game is currently uh you know uh, proving with dragons and with you know how these comps work out and the players that adapt the best and that are able to say hey I have to change my thoughts about TFT and instead do this or do that at this point in the game because this is what TFT is right now and until that's changed you know the best players and the players are able to, to adapt quickly and also be flexible overall i think are going to benefit from this um personally i'm also not a huge fan of, of the current uh set not just because of the the unit balance but more kind of the big picture stuff you know there's not really any ap carries that you can consistently play if you enjoy ap that's, that's kind of a, a, a lot of players casual players even don't get fulfilled in that way if they enjoy playing ap in other sets that's, that's a problem i think i think the problem with the dragons of course is an obvious one um other parts of the game, I think augments the the treasure dragon rerolls uh, for augment. I think it's all very very good. Quality of life definitely improved, but TFT changing sets so often and and adding so many new stuff, it is really really hard to understand how everything is going to affect everything else. And I think now the devs are still trying to to figure that out in terms of uh, yeah the big picture balance and all this. So tournaments might be a bit. Uh, iffy in terms of players just looking for a dragon and whoever finds it first is going to do a lot better and it might not be actually the most rewarding for the best skill players or a bit more of a high roll or players that know how to find that high roll um, as well especially so um, and I, I just don't like certain comps being unplayable you know like mages pretty unplayable unless you're like really trying to just high roll to the top four and, and that's it really um, and it just feels like a lot of units and comps can't really be played um, especially not for a top one like it feels like some comps have the, the the chance at a first, you know, just a chance. Other comps, it, they can't even dream of it. Even if you fully high roll everything, you have the most nuts, augment synergy and item synergy and units and everything, you're, you know, thinking as you're going to late game, I can maybe get a, a third maximum or a fourth. I think that feels really bad. Um, or there's certain trees and certain, you know, comp trees that you can't even look at because you know they're not going to, you're not going to find success with them. And I think that, that's definitely not great for competitive play or for casual play even as well. A lot of really good points there. I, I want to pick up on, on one thing specifically you said there, and, and that was regarding competitive v. casual uh, and where that sort of line is drawn when it comes to uh, things like ability power and attack damage and things like that. Uh, going into this tournament, uh, this sort of EU, this watch, watch along that I did over the last couple of days as, mm -hmm. as we were working on this kind of thing, uh, from my perspective, uh, one of the things that I knew about EU players was that a lot of the top 
EU players have always been AD-centric players. So um, when I get into a game, uh, I watch along, and I see every all eight players in the lobby have a frozen heart, and the top five players are all playing Siphon, I think to myself, ah, yes. This is TFT. This is the TFT I was expecting to see right now. Uh, Sol, I want to come to you and, and sort of talk a little bit about items right now. Uh, we talked about how, to be honest, useless Frontline was in set 6.5. We did a lot yep, of discussion yep. about uh, the uselessness. Can you guys give me a second? Yeah, set. One on my door. One second. Oh, sure. No trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Whatsoever. All right, guys, we're going to vamp for a moment. Just one second. <sighs> for Panda. I'm actually going to finish my cup of tea. Oh, we won't. Yeah, uh, I'm not editing this out, by the way. If you guys listen to the audio, you're just gonna have to sit here for 30 seconds. I'm so sorry. You're not editing this out. Thanks. Uh, maybe I'll edit it out on the on the pod. Ah, uh, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's not too bad. It only took. Oh, go go. I'm back. Yeah. All right, welcome. Back. Cool, cool, cool. So we're talking about itemization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh, frontline items and frontline units used to be shit. Mm. Now they're really good. Yep. Um, yep. Really, really good. Um, and I specifically noticed it when I was thinking about Frozen Heart. Um, it's a dragon... It's an anti-dragon item. It's a pro-dragon item. It, it stops the frontline dragons from killing your whole board in the first five seconds. Uh, what are your thoughts about sort of where the those items are right now? That sort of play style as well, defensive itemization? Um... Look, I think it's fine. I think that like it's uh it's inherently gonna be hard to to juggle the balance between like uh offensive and defensive items. Um I think that like the champion pool in in any given set will drag that in one direction or the other. We saw that in sec six for example. Um that like the tank stats that frontline has got were like not very significant. Um that combined with the unit balance like the, the frontliners that were available in that set, right, made it so that it wasn't as worth it to invest in frontline. Um, whilst at the same time you have these very, very highly lethal um carries, like I'm thinking like like a like a six challenger Yone in set six that could just completely destroy your board in like three seconds. Um or even something like uh even something like a Sivir in set six point five, um that just had the ability to hit the to hit the bypass backline, right? I think that like in this set, for example, we, we see like a lot of more sort of traditional um front to back carries, we see sort of less backline access. Uh, that combined with the fact that um they you know, the dragon mechanic makes it so that like in units inherently are sort of tankier, right? Like dragons are big, um a lot of the units that are played with them are big. So you have a lot of units with a lot of in, like, you know, base HP, right? A lot a lot of base tank stats. Um and so yeah, tank items become very, very strong, right? I think like on, on the like topic of frozen heart, I think it's like very, very touchy topic for a uh, very sore, very sore for a lot of players. You know, we we all know the the, the dies of heart, uh, dies of heart Twitch meme, very funny. Um, I think that yeah, uh, I mean, Mortok has said himself that like he, uh, did, him and the devs have, have talked a lot about reworking the item. Probably not coming anytime soon because you know, have to have to figure out what what the item should be doing instead. Um, but I do think, I, I will say that, like, I, I think it does feel bad that the item is very, very sort of polarizing. Um, you know, sometimes it it, it, it sort of requires an assassin uh, to sort of re reach its full potential. Mm -hmm. um, and also, like, it, you know, creates a sort of toxic play pattern where if you're playing a backline carry, you almost feel like a lot of times you need QSS. Otherwise, 
you're just gambling on the right side. And a lot of times, like, even if you are on the other side, it doesn't even matter. Assassin finds a way to get to your carry anyway, because of the two, the, the two hex range, I think. It's like two hexes, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. But point is, is that the, the item's quite polarizing in terms of how it behaves, which I think is, like, not the best. It's like, you know, how it feels. Um, yeah, so I think that, like, you know, what's, like, uh, more than the devs that, like, address this, I think, yeah, and, like, I tend to agree with a lot of people that, like, doesn't feel great. Um, yeah, uh, on, like, on, like, an aside, I think that, like, the current state of, like, crit balancing also doesn't feel particularly good. Um, I think the fact that, like, things like Infinity Edge are so hired to, like, assassins in order mm-hmm. to, like, really do damage feels quite bad. Um, you know, uh, it feels pretty bad to, like, for example, sign, like, a... I mean, you would never do this these days, but, you know, it feels really bad to sign, like, an Infinity Edge and you're playing AD instead of saving the components for, like, a Giant Slayer or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, similar feelings about, like, Jewel Gauntlet, that item feels... Ex- Adam's, like, entire identity feels like it's tied to its combo with Infinity Edge. No one mm-hmm. really ever... No should they build a Jewel Gauntlet by themselves. But I feel like these things is... Yeah. Sorry if you wanted to... Yeah, I think a lot of this stems from the fact there's no uh, way to really a- play AP consistently. Uh, you're having to... The same thing with Frozen Heart. You're having to burn, find a way to kill a tier. And Frozen Heart is the best way to do it. Redemption is also being played a lot on, on tanks because you have to kill a tier because there's not any way to play AP. Same with so many dead items. You know, uh, Last Whisper, you can only really play on Corky. Uh, there's no other unit in the game, especially without bodyguards, that really uh, there's a reason to play Last Whisper on. Um, same with IE, as you're mentioning, JG. And that's maybe already a problem. It was already kind of not great in, in set six. There was a lot of AP carries unless you were playing the combo with IE. But now in this head, even more, it's, it's you can't really build it ever, um, I feel like. Yeah. So there's a lot of different items like this that are just, you don't have the, the chance to build it. You don't have a chance to play around that item combination. If you're playing all of your augments and items, as you should be with TFT, and say, oh, I have these items. I'm going to play this comp. I'm going to look for this carry unit. A lot of the times with certain components, you can't. And you're just having to, to force one thing and play kind of slam what you can because they're just archer items you can't build they're just not playable at all not even on like the best case scenario and i think that creates some problems as well whether it's you know morello is not really uh there's no chance of it being built for example there's like i'm not gonna say half the items are dead but there's a very large number compared to set six i think like just to stay on that topic right i think that like part of the issue stems from the fact that like um offensive itemization is inherently supposed to be more sort of narrow as like a balancing mm-hmm. lever if that makes sense mm-hmm. um which was which worked fine in the previous set because you know offensive itemization is where you want it to be so you know it, it it's it's counterbalanced essentially by the fact that like you know the items are more narrow they force you down specific lines of play um and sort of on the flip side of that you know offensive itemization sorry sorry defensive itemization is a lot more flexible you know mm-hmm. like doesn't matter if you're AP, doesn't matter if you're AD, doesn't matter if you're some yeah. you know, assassins or whatever, right? Sunfire is always going to be valuable, Bramble's always going to be valuable, Warmer's always going to be valuable. But in, you know, the previous set, it was counterbalanced by the fact that, like, tanks are, you know, weaker. They're mm-hmm. not really the end game you want to be investing in. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this set, whereas in this case, uh, set, yeah, on the other hand, yeah. you know, the tanks, are, the tanks are exactly where you want to be. You know, the, mm-hmm. the tanks are the good units. Mm-hmm. So, in a situation where, like, uh, tank items just give you so much value, like, at any strategy game compared to mm-hmm. offensive square, you know, if you don't end up in the right, you know, if you end up in the right carry, you're just left with these items that just not perform very well at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, very, very, very good. I wanna, I wanna stick on that a little bit because there's a lot of, um, a lot of item specific things that you guys brought up. Um, one of them being how right you were about tier pander, and I want to sort of bring that up right now. Uh, there's basically no 
tier item that feels really good, aside from Redemption, for instance, as you mentioned, and Frozen mm-hmm. Heart. Those are very, uh, by nature, items that are designed to uh, exist as like a countermeasure almost to what's going on around you. Uh, you don't, in a regular game, go into it with the idea that your first two tank items are going to be redemption for instance mm-hmm. you know a lot of times and in pretty much every previous set you would slam warmogs and blue buff for instance with two two of those things but because blue buff mm-hmm. is almost entirely unusable in in a lot of ways right now there's no like premier blue buff user even what many people would consider to be the like the the playable AP unit rise doesn't really get much value out of it because his mana cost continues to go away from what makes blue buff so powerful on on mage units. Um, we're really sort of left with uh, items that are in a really really poor state and a really a state that is not particularly balanced for the current set. Balanced in general. And they've always been really good about changing the items when they feel the need to. But certainly uh, in this set, I don't think they've quite got it right yet on, on what exactly they're looking for for those items. So, um, Yeah, I mean, on a, on a sort of bit of a chatting moment, you know, uh, it's sort of in hindsight, but I mean, it did always strike me odd that um, he was designed as an AD carry mm-hmm. instead of like an AP carry with sort of how he behaves with his cast, his, his missiles and everything. Um, I kind of get that, like, maybe they thought that, like, you know, well, Corky was was an AP unit in set 6.5. If we make, if we just essentially scale that up, you know, people are going to be like, oh, you know, we're kind of being lazy and stuff. But I, I the champion, like, the champion sandbox feels kind of weird because... Oki is like an AD carry when it's missing a four cost AP carry, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like a you could say you can argue that like Deja is an AP carry, but like Deja is not actually a four cost, Deja is an eight cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um so it, it, it's sort of missing that sort of like you know generic four cost AP carry. And there also just you know, isn't isn't really anybody that uses blue buff at all. Mm-hmm. Um granted, you know, I think blue buff definitely doesn't feel as bad to build because of that sort of starting mana change that they made uh, in set 6.5. I think that, like, if we were playing with the very old blue buff, that was, like, literally just, like, 20 mana or whatever, and then with the, with the you know, same effect. And, you know, I think we can really start to complain that this is just a dead item. Um, I, I think that, like, you know, the random utility blue buff is not the end of the world. You know, it makes you bard instacast, makes you stone instacast. But it does feel bad that there isn't, like, a... There isn't, like, a carry that sort of just, you know, machine guns their cast. I, I think that, like, that's, like, a... Yeah, that's like a play pattern slash like I guess like you know uh, champion fantasy that a lot of a lot of players quite enjoy you know just like watching watching their unit just like repeatedly you know fire fire off like a machine gun sort of effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll I'll say that like yeah that that's been quite disappointing. I haven't really I, I sort of agree wholeheartedly on that point. I think also the 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 tree of kind of going from early game you could you could play Ezreal and Karma before now you have to have the very specific augments. And there just isn't a way to transition off of Ezreal and Karma into like a Nivea, because the Nivea is just not really strong enough, for example. Um, you're mentioning the same with like Sona, for example, isn't really a carry. Um, compared to Set 6.5, especially we had units like Fiora that could use pretty much any item really effectively, they could use a lot of AP items also very effectively. We don't really, really have that in, in Set 7. Um, and there's just this massive gap going into late game of 
you can't play flex around AP and and play strongest board early game and slam AP items because you don't you don't have anything to transition to. You have to you know go this down this very narrow road of Ezreal reroll of Karma reroll of maybe Mirage with Deja if you find the perfect setup and a perfect uh, Mirage uh, right uh, kind of trait. Um, so it, that's I think the feel bad moment, and that's where you start seeing. Um, AD much more contested because everyone's forced to go into AD and there's this huge disparity if you're playing flexibly and trying to play, you know, TFT, I think how it should be played at a very high level where you don't have the option even to go AP even under perfect circumstances because there's just not an avenue for it. And I think that's something they have to adjust because it affects everything else. It affects um, how much more contested AD is, how much more it feels like everyone's contesting for the same units, how everyone's playing the same comps. It, there's less variety. Um, there's less maybe positioning stuff as well because certain units aren't played at all or there's no expectation to see them played as carries in the late game. So I think it's a big issue. They have to adjust. And maybe that goes into also looking at items like Morello, for example, making it better somehow, uh, reverting but, uh, the nerfs they had initially coming to the set. Um, overall, I think that's a little bit, yeah, as I mentioned, not just balance on champions, but kind of big picture implications of, of if we do this, what, what happens if, you know, if we add dragons, how does that affect, the, you know, the game and as a whole treasure dragon as well, taking away the interest gold, for example, I think was a, a change that for me baffled me completely Getting to level nine is now much more yeah. difficult. Um, there's Ever. a lot of things like big picture stuff that I think they have to, uh, adjust and, and really look at and say, Hey, this is maybe not the right direction uh, for set seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, really good point. Sorry, so I wanted to just cut in there because very quickly, uh, that's cool, that's cool, about, um, specifically when you mentioned Sona, I think one of the big things about Sona in particular is they made a lot of mistakes with Seraphine, a very compar comparative mm -hmm. unit in mm -hmm. set 6, 6.5. We talked a lot on this podcast. There was a period of time at the start where she wasn't a carry and she wasn't a healer. Then they buffed her way too much, and she was a carry and a healer. They nerfed her damage. She was a really good healer, but not a really good carry. Um, and that basically continued throughout the entirety of the set. It warped a lot of the early metas, the early patches of 6, 6.5, where um, the, that unit, specifically Seraphine, was really strong or totally unplayable. And I think they've really erred on the side of caution with Sona. We aren't going to give her mm -hmm. an extensive damage outburst. Unless, I mean, of course, there is Mage Cap. Um, and I think yep, Mage, Mage, Mage mm -hmm. Sona is the, nice. like, the only fun I've had playing this game in set 7 since it's come out. I think it's been it's really yeah, Mage Sona is pretty fucking fun. It's so <laughs> yeah, fun. Mage Sona is pretty good. It's so cool. But that is also the AP power fantasy that you get because you can actually one-shot units. Uh, one-shot mm -hmm. backline units do big AoE, mage damage, fast casting, all of that. You get that real power fantasy that AP players like to get. Um, but on Sona, and I think on a lot of units in this set, they are very, very hesitant to repeat old mistakes. And mm -hmm. Sona seems like a big one to me where they... Sona could have been a premier, a pristine, out-of-this-world AP carry if they really wanted to. She could have had no stun and just done a big... AoE damage, for instance. So stun, wider crescendo, yeah. Yeah. Um, more damage. She's already got innate traits that make her really interesting and, and flexible. You could play her with different kinds of frontline, you know, combining with Tom Kent. She could play Bruises and Evokers, for instance. Those kind of, th you know, then you could play Nomzi and so on and so forth. They really, I think one of the premier reasons that ap feels so weak along with everything that you guys have said is that they played it really safe with a unit that in any other set would have been an ap carry 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Seraphine, yep. Lux. I mean, you know, going back, Lux again. Uh, you know, whatever. We've had hundreds yeah. of AP carries over the over the years. Um, Star Guardian. I think potentially. I was gonna say, um, if I can add, I think potentially like it might also be an issue where um, they're also just like not too sure what they can do with the four sort of four cost AP carry design space. Because if we really think about it, right, like in the history of the game, four cost AP carries boil down to either um, there are the beam, like a diagonal beam focused, like beam laser champion, like mm-hmm. Lux, like Aesol, like Velkos, um, or they just throw a gigantic ball onto the board and things die, like, you know, Zephyr Ari, right? It, it could very much be a situation where um, they're trying to sort of push their design boundaries, but they're not too sure, you know, where to go with that, right? Um, I think, like, Mordok has said in the Q&A that, like, um, you know, the team isn't, sh- like, the team wanted to try to set, you know, what, what it would be like without a full-cost AP carry. Um, you see that with the fact that uh, two of the ten costs are AP carries, right? Um, you know, now I'm not going to argue whether this decision is correct or wrong, but I will say that, you know, I think it's cool that, you know, the devs are willing to push the boundaries, they are willing to challenge what is considered conventional. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that like um, for better or worse, um, sort of inst- like these sort of learnings do um, help iterate, like help sort of future iterations of the game, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all I really want to add. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, let's keep um, let's keep on this right now. I wanted to bring up one of the very few things that Duck said in a nine-hour stream that was in full English that I understood, and that was. Jade is incredibly overpowered, his exact words. Um, and oh, he specifically yeah, talked about he specifically talked about the Jade opener. And Panda, I want to come to you here. Um, I really enjoyed playing Jade on the PVE. I think Jade is actually really fun. It's a really cool mechanic. A lot of the coolest units in the set are Jade units. So how do you feel about that trade and sort of where it sits right now? I think it's just very good because it's not just the trade is good, but it also has in the late game uh, very good units. Shio I think, is the best dragon right now, um, alongside Siphon, probably. Uh, Nico is, you know, in a, in a meta that, that has very good tanks and tanks that are very unkillable, and you'll have this idea of, like, playing, and a lot of fights come down to two tanks, and whoever, whoever's wall gets broken down first, then kind of floodgate opens and everything else, including that much background access. Um, in this meta, where some tanks are very, very good and other tanks don't do anything, Nico uh, stands, uh, you know, pretty far ahead of the pack, where she's very good. Nar is very good as a two-cost, uh, just, you know, same trade as Nico, so it just works very well. Um, I think all this exacerbates to the point where if you're playing flex and you're playing around dragons and, you know, kind of all these variables that are that are play- good players should be keeping note of in this patch, it all leads into uh, Jade. You have Soraka as well, to get a very good utility unit for the late game. Um, and it's just a very versatile kind of advantage. You know, the, the trait that what Jade gives you is just, it can work on pretty much everything. Uh, everything benefits from it to some extent. So it, it's a very like open generic trait that, that also has very good units. So sure there's a positioning downside to some extent, but you can play around that with 6J with having two different statues, for example. So I just think a lot of this current meta leads into Jade being very strong. And then the opener as well, with Guardians, with Tarek is also very strong. And just the way that the three trait works and what it gives you in the early game is also just very, very good. So I do, the one thing that I think the AP carries, uh, Anabia, it can be played like the the, the Flex, GOU, uh, Jade variant, but isn't amazing. Ezreal also after the nerf isn't amazing. We were playing Swift Shot with Ash. Karma got 
buff, but she still has she's still very buggy with her cast, so it's also not great. But just in general, Jade throughout the whole game is useful, and you can kind of commit to Jade to some extent and still be flex into what the late game looks like and still be fine. Whereas with other comps and other trees, you can't really do that. Hmm. Yeah. So your your sort of overall Jade thoughts right now. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I think it's, like, definitely, you know, it's very, very strong, right? Um, I think what part of what makes the trait sort of inherently so powerful is that, um, I think, like, in the history of the game, sort of any, um, any trait that sort of puts, essentially, extra units on the board, um, has always traditionally been very powerful early game. Uh, think of things like, um, Innovator in the very recent, uh, set that, you know, we just came from. Um, so, you know, Jade has this, you know, similar effect where, you know, you're essentially getting... Uh, you're getting free sort of stats on the board, right? Um, in addition to the units that you're normally playing. Um, I almost want to, like, add to the fact that, you know, Trainer is another very uh, similar situation where it's very, very powerful in the opening stages of the game because it's just an extra unit on the board, right? Um, that provides a lot of value. But, um, you know, not to tension on that too much, to go back to Jade, I think, like, you know, part of what also makes that so powerful is that uh, the health regen in a set where, you know, tanks are extremely uh, dominant and very powerful... Um, adds sort of an extra layer of, you know, defense to these sort of front lines that make them, you know, frustratingly unkillable, especially in the early game when, uh, you know, backlines aren't, you know, very scrappy, they're not fully established, so, you know, overall damage output is quite low. We end up in a situation where, you know, like a, you know, just like a, just like a random three, three one-star, you know, J-board ends up, you know, tanking for a lot longer than it probably should because of all the free value that the Jade statue provides. Um, I think that things like this like will be eventually ironed out once they get the numbers right. Um, but yeah, for right now, it, it's quite dominant. Uh, it doesn't feel that great to play against. Hmm. I will say as well, it, it's one of few uh, very... There's always in every TFT set, there's a very simple comp to play, as in six of it or nine of it is powerful, just by existing, <laughs> just putting the units that cost that much that light up green on the board will always be a genuinely pretty good strategy just because of, of the game is, is built around intervals where progressing through the levels will get you better units for your comp. So having a, um, having a C green click green option, for example, is a relatively easy way to sort of mainline a, um, a very a very powerful comp just by existing, especially if the numbers are quite high. And I think right now, especially Shio the numbers are way too high. That unit kills everything yeah, on the board. Uh, mm -hmm. High that, damage and tanky. Yeah. yeah. Something that used to kill everything on the board and still is right now, maybe not as much, is Zaya. I will say that a lot of my notes writing down when I was going through the tournament VODs and looking at players' perspectives. Zyra is still an incredibly highly played character, and I think the reason is it's the only unit that's not a dragon that reliably kills dragons. Uh, it just has such an innate ability to, to kill tanks. If it doesn't get sniped by a Siphon Panda, what are your sort of thoughts on how Zyra is sitting at the moment? Has already seen a couple of nerfs. I think 
still very strong because there's a lot of backline access with her ult. I think when fights are, are drawn out, uh, she can do a lot of damage. It's kind of AOE damage level, which for an AD carry isn't the most normal thing um, as well. So there's a lot of different factors that it's not just the numbers of her of her damage and her attacks and all this, but just the way her ult works, the way it works in this current meta and, and how the game's playing out right now, I think it's still going to be very, very effective uh, and very, very strong. And it just does... Too much damage, I think. Like it's it's too reliable of an AD carry uh, when you're not hitting other things. As you mentioned, it can kill dragons. It can actually break that that dam, you know, and and the floodgates open and allow for that damage to push through into the back backline as well. So, um, yeah, it feels like it's it's doing what AP carries would usually do in terms of having backline access. You mentioned before, soul with kind of the diagonal ults and kind of the positioning importance. And it seems like Zaya is filling that spot, but also has all the benefits that AD carries usually have, um, which is why I think she's so oppressive. And I think it's more. Not so much the numbers and her damage, and her, but more how her ult plays out um, on the field uh, that makes her very, very strong and still is very strong despite these nerfs where you normally see these nerfs happen and the, the champion's unplayable or like very subpar. Like if you find everything perfectly for this for this comp, you can go it, but now it's still the default AD comp when you're not hitting your dragons. And um, I don't think that's a good thing. I think it makes the, the top, again, Zaya is a comp that can be first and can even consider. Uh, playing Zaya and actually make, getting a first place, whereas a lot of comps don't have that option. I think that does feel quite bad. Yeah, uh, very well put, especially when we're, we're thinking about sort of the, the overall big picture, as you've talked about. We want a lot of different comps to be viable, uh, and I think that when they decided to attempt to speed this game up last patch by removing the stage four six to five one gold interval as well as extra turn extra xp extra gold i actually think they've done almost the opposite the game has actually slowed down uh mm -hmm. where it was supposed to speed up mostly because now whereas before uh having a dragon was not a guarantee that the game would go long the game would take a while you would snowball off of just having a singular dragon um, now, because the, the intervals are all changed and, and people are spending more of their gold earlier in the game, they're also actively looking for earlier breakpoints. The game is actually way, way, way slower than it was previously because people are getting stronger earlier and then the rest of the lobby is getting stronger as the game goes on instead of at relatively similar times throughout the game. And, and that usually think, causes a very quick game. Sorry, continue. I think it's especially slower in the top four. I think the yes. the, the, the four first players that get knocked out, it's maybe faster. It's because you low roll, you don't hit a dragon, you don't hit whatever. You're you're forced into a comp that's that's really not not you know mages, whatever it is that players are still kind of trying to to pull off. And you just get you know you end up. I'm um, I'm seeing now in the last few games I played the last week or so that there's. Four players that are sitting above 40 HP, uh, two players that are above 70 HP, 60 HP, you know, very, very healthy. And then four players are just scrambling to rolling down at seven, trying to do anything they can to knock out an eighth because they low rolled the early game, they didn't hit a dragon. They start getting hit for much more HP in stage three and stage four. And we're seeing this huge disparity. And, and the top four is this like super drawn out fights, much slower pace to actually end the game because... Um, you have your dragons and, and just how the fights play out. So I do think it, yeah, it doesn't feel very good where we used to yeah. have patches in set six, six point five, where it was super close. Everyone was, you know, 10 feet away from each other. Um, no one was being eliminated too early. It was always in stage five, for example. So that's definitely not, I think that this is definitely highlights kind of the disparity between high rolling stage three and, and how much more variance there is in terms of 
where the, the biggest high rolls are with Shimmer Scale, with Draven's Axe, with Dragons on stage three with Siphon or, or Shield U, um, and how low the lowest roll, low rolls are, where there's comps that are unplayable. There's certain units that even if you go there on, everything goes perfectly, you're still going to get top eight and you can't win any fights and you get, you know, uh, you lose 15 HP per fight in stage four. So um, that's the biggest issue right now, I think, with the tempo of the games. But I quickly add that, like, there's even just a unit that heals HP mm-hmm, in Soraka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to play when behind, but it's very, very easy to slash if you board one ahead. Yeah. Which, you know, further sort of salts the wound uh, on, you know, this HP gap between the top four and the, uh, and the bottom four, right? Mm-hmm. So just wanted to add that really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very true. Uh, look, there's only sort of one or two more kind of meta things that I wanted to chat about uh, going back and looking at the VODs of, of this EU tournament, of course, the the closest thing we we have to discuss and where, as the meta is still developing. And for me, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that is Siphon. Siphon getting a buff, getting a very um, impactful buff and also a, a relatively significant bug fix. So now it doesn't alt Shen every round, which mine always <laughs> used to do. My opponents never did. My, my, my carry would always die, but mine always, always hit the Shen. It seems to happen less often right now. Um, Panda, you mentioned a little bit about Siphon when we were, when we were talking about the other dragons, but uh, I, just, I guess my, my question is, do you think that Siphon is a particularly healthy design for, for a dragon? I don't think so because there's the 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 high roll aspect that you don't want to have. You know, there's certain variants that's good in terms of like low impact and many decisions, kind of a very split out variants that's very good with augments and kind of I mean everything in TFT is really there's a lot of variants, but it's it's kind of low impact variants where one single decision doesn't make up for a lot of the results. But with Siphon and his ult, that's not the case. If Siphon ults a right unit and hits your carry, hits your Corky, for example, uh, I, I love playing Corky all of the set. And Corky now feels kind of bad when Siphon's very good because all of a sudden Siphon ults, hits your Corky, the fight's over. Your damage output is gone. You have a useless Itis or a useless Siphon of your own with no items really. And you just slowly uh, you know, lose out. Um, so I think it feels bad the way his ult works. I think it's he's a very uh, variant type of unit and also just a very good unit early on. Uh, one star without items in stage three can still just... Uh, completely snowball the game in your favor and has good traits as well. Whispers, I think, it works well with many of the units right now, and, and Bruiser, of course, um, works well with HP and just works well in general. So, I think it's a very like divisive unit right now where he can do too many good things if everything goes right, and, and that creates this this big disparity as well. Yeah. So, your thoughts? It's a very polarizing design, right? Like it either um, it either dives, you know, the right side, it's onto your carry, one shots it, or Stuck on like a frontliner and doesn't reach your character until like you know, the fight's mostly done, right? I think that like in general, those types of um designs never really feel great. I don't think it feels particularly good being the one. Okay, well, obviously, it does not feel good being on the receiving end of it, but I also don't think it feels particularly satisfying being on the end that's actually dishing it out, you know? Like, you're just like, okay, cool, my guy one shot his guy, yay, you know, clap, clap, clap. It's yeah, like there's not too much room to sort of outplay. I guess it's 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 one of those like, oh, was it on the right side or not kind of things. I have seen like a few sort of you know a position niches in terms of um, in terms of trying to draw away Siphon Aggro. I think in general like that is, I I I I, I tend to agree that like the design is somewhat flawed. Um, I, I I like that like you know the, the fantasy of like a sort of bruiser, you know, bruiser esque almost, uh, but but almost like. 
it's like bruiser-esque, right? But then the thing is, it's like it's also like very high, sort of high DPS. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of like like that like overall design aspect of it. Um, but I think that like the the actual iteration that they landed on um doesn't feel great. Um, so yeah, it, it is something that, like I I would like to see reworked. Um, I, I like to see sort of a more even distribution of its power rather than it all sort of being front loaded into this, you know, supercharged oil attack after it, you know, mm-hmm. charges mm-hmm. it, right? And without so, even like, yeah, building but... into this like full damage or like full like one shot yeah. thing, you're still getting that. And that, that's a problem. You can't really make it so yeah. it's just too balanced down because then it's the same as Shiyu basically, just with more range. Mm. But there has to be a middle ground somewhere where it can still maybe I do more, I, I, more yeah. AoE than single target and it can do less burst mm-hmm. and, and more kind of split damage. Maybe Shiyu with more range in some way while still making kind of its own identity. But yeah, I think that's also a big problem where it's just charges. If it hits the right thing, it's dead and that's it. You know, it doesn't matter if yeah, you're building too. Much to empower this this uh this one attack it's just already you know uh, de facto has that already built in so that, that's definitely an issue i think hmm. yeah they made a very specific point when they were talking about how to effectively make assassins less frustrating to play against when they changed how assassin jumping worked very recently and i think that the same justification probably is deservedly needing to be used for something like Siphon as well, where there needs to be a positive outcome for actively positioning against this unit and actively trying to build your board around not dying to Siphon, mm-hmm. uh, which is very hard to do right now, but it doesn't really happen, to be honest. I, I don't... Every time I see I'm coming up against Siphon, even if I move my board, it still ends up killing my carry at the end of the day. It nope. still will. So it's more of a, um, it's more of a, oh, it's definitely about, it's going to happen. We're, we're, or I'm predicting that it's just going to happen. I don't get a say in when or how my board positioning doesn't change the outcome of, of the mm-hmm. fight in any way. And I think that would be. A, re- a very reasonable and an easy change to make that would make it a, a less frustrating experience, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final, the very final thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to the meta is that the last time we podcasted, everything we were talking about was uh, two minutes or so after the Bolly Bear hotfix. Mm-hmm. So the last big discussion we had was mostly surrounding um, how Bolly Bear and Swain might end up playing out and i for one saw very little of it in the eu qualifying events very little bolly bear very little swain very little lee sin practically no nunu as well no dragon mancers they're basically totally forced out of the meta uh because of the nerfs that affected them uh three cost reroll and three cost carries have been a a problem a solution a fun experiment a great composition uh, all of the above over the years so how do you feel the sort of power level and of these units is right now do you think that they deserve to be a little bit stronger do you think that they're fine the way that they are uh i i i I, i'll I'll be honest i i think they find the way they are i think um think like three cost reroll is is, okay, this is my opinion, right? Purely my opinion. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but this is how I feel about it. Uh, I think three cost reroll encourages fairly toxic play patterns in terms of like they're very polarizing in how they actually play out. Um, 
a three, three star three costs um when they're good tend to uh be uh overwhelmingly powerful when they're three star um and still quite powerful even at the two star threshold right um we've seen this in many different sets before um if you think if i wanted uh, to use a recent example uh i can use like shaco uh from set um from set 6.0 which was capable of um consistently top flooring um even with just the two star version um, I think that like it's very that's a very problematic situation where um, you have a metal where you are incentivized you have you are in essentially incentivized into uh, open forwarding stage two um, into a three two rolldown in order to try to you know two star three three cost right um, we sort of saw this we sort of saw this play out um, with the Swain with the Swain metal where you know you have like four five six people in the lobby just just mindlessly forcing the Swain every single game um, they just open for it into a Swain at three two. Hit the sign too. Okay, I got my items. Fast day, fast nine, good to go. Um, I think that like because three roll should be a viable path to victory. Um, but I think it should never be like it, it, it should never be a sort of default sort of strategy. If that makes sense, it, it should be it should be a line of play that like opens up because you know uh, a specific things sort of lined up in the game. But I think that like um, making three costs, I guess, like really really good as like a carry option. Um, in my experience, like just from sort of games I've played, from sort of matters I've sort of witnessed, um, tends to lead to fairly unhealthy play patterns that I don't really like myself. But that's just my opinion. I think there's like a balance point, right? I mean, you have to make it so it's playable because I think it is very important to have different uh, play patterns overall. Um, right now, for example, I think in open qualifiers, maybe Dragon Mancers and Three Cross weren't played so much because the moment you go into that route of saying, I'm going to play Three Cross Reroll, I'm going to follow these leveling patterns and these rolling patterns, you're not playing for four costs, not playing for dragons. And that's why it's not so played right now because players want, would rather play flex and would rather play around achieving this very high high roll that makes them very, very strong and maybe more consistent if they hit at least um, in terms of like stabilizing. Then going the route of hey i'm gonna play three costs swing reroll or you know whatever it is and then just you're basically not playing for dragons you're you're not playing for that uh possibility at all which is not very very strong i think it's a big big deal but there have been three cost rerolls that have been uh good playable as you mentioned it can be a first it can certainly be a top four it can be very consistent if you're if no one's contesting you that's maybe one thing a player you're looking for a lot um but there have been of course metas like olaf meta um um, yeah. Where certain carries are, are in Swain as well, where they're too strong and people are just defaulting to them because they know that even with a two star, even if they're contested, they can still uh, guarantee a top four and maybe get a second or a first as well. Um, so finding that sweet spot, I think, is, is important, but it has to exist at the very least. I think reroll strats overall are important for uh, allowing different play patterns and allowing different ways to push tempo, to increase pressure in stage three and four, and to not have everyone doing the same thing. Because the Magic of TFT is that the game kind of balances itself. And if there's a lot of different, not just comps to play, but ways to play those comps and leveling patterns to follow, it makes the game that much better because it allows the best players to adapt to what they're seeing, to, to the pressure they're seeing from these players, uh, you know, and how each different lobby is going to play out differently than the last one, and not just everyone mindlessly doing one thing, be it Fast 8, Fast 9, be it Reroll, be it playing this comp, being it playing Dragons. So uh, that's a problem that I think now Dragons are also exacerbating that they're not they're making some reroll comps unplayable because they follow different play patterns and reroll and leveling patterns and so you can't choose one or the other you can't be flexible around both yeah i think that's very very true especially when it comes to leveling patterns and play patterns overall there are so many different ways to play this game and if we're cutting off 
the viability of certain aspects of the game for viability, we're left with a very stagnant experience. And yeah. unfortunately, as much as we all love this game, I think right now, and a lot of people, not not just the three of us talking here, are, are, um, are disappointed with the stagnation. However, we know how hard this development team works and how hard they listen to community feedback and, and how hard they they actively love working on changing bettering this game so there's no doubt in my mind that they will get it right and even in the times of unbridled rage like war week in set four and things like that you also um you always come back to tft in a better state than maybe where you left it for a week if you really needed a week off from from playing a game that wasn't in a perfectly balanced state mm-hmm uh, Panda, I want to come to you with a little final thing before we move on to questions, uh, and that was is more of a, an EU-specific centric question. You know, we have a Golden Spatula tournament coming up, as you mentioned, so I would really love it if you uh, would sort of plug where to watch, uh, how to watch, how to get involved, how to, how to stream it, and, and things like that. It'll be on the Teamfight Tactics uh channel on twitch as always it starts on friday at 4 p.m cest i think or 5 p.m around there like early afternoon european time um and it'll be uh, three days friday saturday sunday um we'll go down from 128 players to 64 to 32 on the last day um the winner uh qualifies directly to regional finals the, and i meant there's the kind of point earnings as well that matter for your placement so it's going to be very relevant of course who, who is in the top spots and overall, uh, a lot of very good players coming into it. Of course, we mentioned the open qualifier players, which are maybe a bit less known because they're not going directly to the challenger ladder, which is most of the very good, very known players. Um, but just I can mention some names. Of course, Daysake, Solgesang, uh, Boo, Salvi, a uh, you know, veteran uh, from Germany, Kevin Parker, Volta. I mean, all the names you would expect. Potable, all the French players are there. Double 61 is in top 10 of the ladder right now as well. Um, we have, you know, Ging from Turkey. Uh, uh, the, the UNE, uh, Saudi, for example, and a lot of the players are known from there. Um, Skipage as well, Rodante. So all the big names are there. I think there's not any like anyone that's really missing because if you're grinding top of the ladder, you're going to be there. So it's going to be a very, very good tournament, I think. Um, the open qualifier players that made it through were also um, the kind of the big names that were missing from the the, the just directly qualifying to the ladder, like Sproyson, for example. Um, so I'm very hyped to cast it. It's going to be my first tournament cast. It's going to be a competitive tournament. We casted the Invitational Dragon Party at the start of the set, but that was very different to what the meta looks like right now, and obviously um, a little bit more for fun, whereas this tournament, everything's on the line, and as I mentioned, you know, uh, the meta might not be maybe the best, there might be some things that are a bit polarizing, but overall seeing how players are able to abuse these things and how that actually pans out where there's actually something on the line is going to be very interesting, I think, for anyone that enjoys competition, enjoys CFT in general. Great, thank you so much for that, really appreciate it. Guys, this is the part of our show as always, every week, or every two weeks, or every three weeks, or however long in between podcasts we usually are, where we take questions from the audience. Uh, Soul's really nice. Uh, I told you all months ago that I wouldn't accept questions from Twitch chat. Soul never listened to me. He wanted you guys to get your questions in. So if you do have questions and you do want to listen live, you can, of course, listen live whenever we stream our podcast at twitch.tv slash cutler. That is C-U-T-L-3-R. And I will hand it over to Sol, who, as always, goes through our questions together and, and hopefully 
we can uh, bring up some really interesting topics. I think we got some good questions this week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just a real quick answer. You know, nice to an extent, right? Uh, there's only so much time we have allocated for this segment. Um, if you, yeah, if you if you put out put a question through via our Discord, uh, I will do my best to make sure that question gets answered. You know, if you put a question through a Twitch chat, uh, no guarantees. All right, cool. So, uh, I guess the first one is uh, cool. Uh, just in general, I guess, um, for sort of up and coming people who are looking into you know getting into like casting, um, how would sort of you recommend um, sort of grow in terms of like growing that knowledge and sort of looking for sort of opportunities? I think yeah, the biggest thing to to think about casting wise is not just your level as a caster and how you're how competent you are at casting the game your broadcasting skills but also a really really big part of it that a lot of people don't really understand is so important is the networking side of it and finding opportunities obviously uh esports is something that for many people is a dream to work in people that love gaming and now how big esports is becoming how big gaming is now also becoming and just you know, culturally um it makes it so that people can find make a living out of streaming out of content creation out of you know so many different things in esports and casting one of those but that also makes it so that it's very hard to pull off um because there is so much competition because it's seen as this very sought after uh thing and it is very hard finding opportunities for it because it's just it's still growing and, and there's again so much competition so the biggest thing i would say is find a way to make yourself stand out um either being very good at the game and being able to to uh create content at a high level, create guides, uh, do certain things with your own initiative that can put your name out so that you can network with players, with tournament organizers, with companies. Um, I was very lucky when I started casting because I was competing in Gwent uh, when it came out from CD Projekt Red. And I was a top player. I was writing guides as well. I was doing journalism kind of stuff and, and writing uh, interviews and stuff for some database websites. And I just had a chance to go to a tournament in Vienna that Lakewood was hosting. I got eliminated in the first round. He wasn't hiring any casters because it was kind of a more, more fun kind of thing. And I had a chance to pretty much cast the whole tournament right before Steve Brother Greg was doing their official circuit. And they just asked me, do you want to work for us? And I did think it was a much more stable uh, income casting and, and also getting job experience than it would be trying to become a player, uh, which I think is a very, you know, not to, you know, rack on players, but I think a very low EV uh, profession overall in esports because a lot of time put into it. And some of it is just, passion so it's not really time but um casting i think was a bit more uh, something i could do long term and a bit more consistently and i just got very lucky where i was lucky in some ways but i was also just very consistent in terms of doing having a lot of initiative trying to, to reach out to people reach out to companies um do my own content that i thought could fit that was kind of unique in the spaces i was working in and that allowed me to, to have a lot of opportunities and um really just make yourself stand out in some way either you're very good at the game either you're very good at, at you know knowing other players and knowing who to talk to, to to find opportunities but that's the biggest thing casting itself i think is just practice having confidence having the right skill set in terms of competence on air and, and being able to be eloquent and, and uh, explain things obviously in strategy games uh, very well and analytically but the biggest thing i think people brush off is how important networking is and how important it is to be in the right spot at the right time uh to continue advancing your career yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. I think that, like, uh, definitely, I, I love that, like, you highlighted the, the very, you know, sort of big aspect of sort of networking, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, esports just is, is an industry, just like any other mm -hmm. sort of career, any other thing. Um, the people you know, it's probably more important than almost anything else. And, you know, for better and worse, that's the way the world works, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
um it, it doesn't even matter if you know you're a naturally introverted person if you're a naturally extroverted person especially in like you know the gaming scene you know most people are naturally introverted doesn't mean that like you can't sort of push yourself out of that comfort zone you know meet people build connections make friends you know that sort of stuff is is really sort of how you you know get into these sort of opportunities how you sort of find these opportunities mm -hmm. right so yeah hey i think that's a great answer um so moving on uh what was your sort of personal i guess highlight uh of the world's uh, broadcast i think just being invited to, to cast the event uh i started casting tft in set six um because gg tech was moving uh, was given the project by Riot to do all the EU tournaments I played before. Um, I'd worked with them in Terra for a while, so they kind of trusted me to to come in, and I transitioned very quickly. Where right? I started playing set six, and in two or three weeks, I had already grown to you know a pretty high level where I could feel confident casting and, and feel like I could actually explain things to viewers and, and not just be talking out of my ass. Um, and I never imagined because there's a lot of kind of seniority in esports overall, where you go into a new game or a new scene, and there's this established personalities, established casters. As I was saying before, it's so competitive that you can't really even making it into the the Rising Lines broadcast team was already a big deal for me. Um, not coming out of nowhere, but not having been involved with TFT in set four and five, um, and to then do what I was doing, Rising Legends, and and doing I think you know a good job um, from you know I kind of met my expectations as a caster for this set. Um, but even then, even if you do everything perfectly. There's a chance you just obviously don't get in, you know, uh, invited to, to be on the broadcasting for Worlds, and that's a completely normal thing. That would be the, the most normal thing because I'm new to the, to the game, I'm new to the scene overall. Um, but I did get invited, I did get the chance to do it, and that already was a huge highlight. I did, did not expect it, even like halfway through set six, that I would have the chance to do so, and then doing more talk madness as well, and, and being able to cast with uh, more talk himself and with Frodo and the, the NA casters as well. Um, that was absolutely huge for me. So I think that was my personal highlight. And being able to cast uh, the very last game and very last fight because of the way the checkmate format worked, it was sad from a, a perspective of the, it's over in four games. But normally in esports, if you know it's going to go to six games or seven games, you have kind of the established, you know, maybe Pro Red and Mordog casting duo doing the final game because they have the most seniority, maybe considered the best casters, whatever it is. Uh, but I got lucky where you know, I was casting game four, I got to cast the final game in a tournament that I didn't expect to be casting at all. So it was kind of all these different things lining up. I'm like, I couldn't really believe that, that was what was happening. But yeah, that was personally the highlight that for me, uh, I think that was the biggest thing. And the fact that yeah, just being there, uh, definitely a highlight of my casting career um, because of just how I think uh, prestigious it is to, you know, TFT Worlds is maybe the biggest event I've done in terms of, it's not a LAN event, it's not maybe viewership wise, but just in terms of what I feel in terms of how much I respect TFT as a game and where it's going, um, it was a big deal. So yeah, super great. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. I think that's like super cool here, right? Um, yeah, for the record, yeah, I'll say that. Yeah, I think you did a really great job. Um, obviously, yeah, like super unexpected, right? That like uh, you know the game ended on the game it did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember watching it, you know, and like being on like the fattest co-pm that like it's fine, it's still hope, you know. Hey, yeah, the hey, a bodyguards are like, nah. There was so much yeah, foreshadowing yeah, yeah. as well with like everything. More dark yeah, yeah, like, the... <laughs> one of the guys in Philadelphia, you know. And then, and then as soon as I saw the eight bodyguard assemble, I was like. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk off, we'll talk everything. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, was, that was quite something. Yeah, that, that, was, that was super exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Uh, that, that is really good to hear. Um, moving on, though. Um, what are your sort of hopes for uh, EU TFT going forward? It could be anything, you know, where, where you sort of want this, like, where you want, you know, the scene to sort of progress, you know, like things like that, basically. Yeah. 
I think there needs to be more highlighting of narratives and storylines similar to how NA is. I think the NA has a very carefully curated uh, like top personalities and top streamers because of how the streaming culture works there as well. It's something that isn't achievable right now in EU because of the, the language barrier in terms of how it's currently played out. It's not being done in English. I hope to try and, and help address that in some way. Um, we were hoping to have uh, maybe a YouTube channel, official YouTube channel opened up for uh, Rising Legends or for TFT in general, uh, where high-level stuff can be done and, and kind of resources can be put into developing storylines and, and helping uh, highlight the, the personalities of play. We're talking at the very start of the podcast today about the NA scene and, and overall in sports comparisons as well, uh, how important I think it is to, to not just highlight competition, which I think is always going to be important, but nowadays I think the personality side of it and the storyline is just as important, looking at like the NBA, uh, the way they highlight all the different narratives and storylines and the players is half of what the basketball and NBA currently is, you know, aside from the game itself. Um, so I think something similar could work wonders for TFT and EU especially, because I think it's it's behind on that because of the reasons of, you know, how divided it is between some countries. But mainly that, being able to do content kind of like what Gangly does and, and you know, different uh, NA streamers just do inherently, just how they, how they stream and how they interact with each other, I think is really, really important. And just more crossover between the, the countries in EU and the players in EU, I think would go uh, a long way in creating better content, better storyline and narratives, but also better competition with, with top players that I mentioned before working together and, and having the whole region kind of work together, I think would be a huge benefit going forward. Yeah, definitely think that like, um, I mean, easier said than done, of course, right? I definitely think that like, you know, sort of more sort of inter inter interconnectivity between mm -hmm. the sort of different, uh, I guess, sub-regions, you could even call them, of mm -hmm. EU would be really, really cool to see. Uh, and finally, a very spicy one. A spicy one that uh, Carla here can also uh, we can we can all sort of take in the discussion. Um, what are our ideas and thoughts on pay-to-play TFT events? <laughs> recent uh, drama recently around around it. Um, but you haven't sort of talked in a while. Yeah, so can get you to start it Look, off. This is a big one because we were going to do a whole podcast just about this last week. So <laughs> we have a lot of experience, and the reason that I have save this question for this week actually we got asked it last week is because panda's background of card games actually plays a, a very valuable role here i think because i would hesitate to guess and you can correct me if i'm wrong panda but i imagine you've been invited to or experienced a pay-to-play tournament before in a card game setting not really because of the, the esports that i worked in runterra and gwent uh, i don't think they have that same uh you know maybe like system revolving around compared to like maybe MTG, for example, or other traditional card games, for example, or like poker, stuff like that. But I mean, I understand obviously the, the idea behind it. I understand the, the pros and cons to some extent. Um, I think the, the biggest deal with the way it was uh, put forward recently um, was just the amount of money that was being put up and kind of how it was more high variance, like on the gambling side of things. I think it's, it's a dangerous, not for the players involved, um, because I think they all know what they were getting into and they knew, you know, what it was for, but maybe more of the precedent sets in terms of uh, the, not the pay to enter and pay to play where you're playing for yourself, but the, the staking side of it, the maybe viewers getting involved from a monetary side of it. That's the, the dangerous ground that I think, you know, it, I think it's normal for TFT developers to, to want to uh, stay away from. And, and you don't want to get into that kind of gambling side of things, which can have a lot of downsides and a lot of like, subconscious downside with how 
big of an issue it is right now with like the, the slot stuff on Twitch and all this. It's very dangerous uh, for young viewers and you can't really police who's watching, who isn't and who it affects and, you know, subconsciously as well. So I think it's definitely like a dangerous area to get into. It can be done. I think it can't work well, but in very specific ways, I think. Hmm. Yeah, very, uh, really, really interesting for you to bring up sort of viewership and the kind of uh, perceived understanding mm-hmm. that there will be a lot of impressionable people watching something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. true that right now, Twitch is sort of currently going through a, a bit of a gambling-esque crisis, in a sense. Yeah. Diablo Immortal, Diablo Immortal being a game that, I mean, I don't know too much about it. I will say that, like, I think from watching a video and from reading a little bit about it, like, to get one item or something that is very powerful costs an average of six and a half grand or yeah. something like that just to play yeah. this, this mobile-esque game at, at a reasonable level. I don't even think it particularly turns you into a game beater for instance uh, mm-hmm. and i'm sure that if there are sort of people who played diablo and things like that before they'd be able to tell me if that was true or not but from my perspective any card game tournament and i have played in plenty of pay to play pay to participate in traditional card game tournaments before mm-hmm. but i never did it in a room full of people age 9 to 35 like mm-hmm. with them watching and being able to potentially put their own money down on that tournament. Uh, it opens up an entirely new different issue. Whereas, as you mentioned, Panda, the people who are participating know exactly what they're getting into. They have the money down. It is their money. They are more than welcome to do anything that they like with it if they want to spend it on betting on a TFT tournament that they're playing in. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) Riot and TFT itself should have absolutely no reason to ever want to be associated with money games in that regard. Mm -hmm. It's too, it's too impressionable in a lot of ways. It's an, I, you know, it's a game that mums and their, you know, kids play on iPads and you can play on a work break. You can play, while you're sitting in bed at night, you know, you can play it on your phone when you're on the bus to school or to work, or you play hyper roll with your friends or things like that. At the end of the day, and, and I say this quite often, I am not TFT's major draw slash demographic. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, and neither is, uh, neither is anybody here really, you know, we are not the, the driving force behind the, raging success of tft's business model it's people that play the game casually that jump in and out that play on their phone it's china it's the chinese market that props it up so incredibly well because it has uh, such a strong following over there it also has very very little uh ga- it has no gambling in it in any way whatsoever because mm-hmm you know, it would not be allowed in that in that country. So mm-hmm. I think um, morally, there's a big difference between participating in one of those tournaments and participating in one of those tournaments in a room where you are being watched by impressionable people. Mm-hmm. If they just wanted to do a money tournament 
and they wanted to do it off stream, I think there would be absolutely no issue with it. I think even streaming it is fine as long as you don't let viewers get involved um, also betting and, and gambling on the results because that's where things get a lot more dangerous. I think they're, uh, going back to Call of Duty, for example, there's like Money 8s, which is scrims that involved also putting in X amount of money to even participate in them. And it, it's a way to incentivize. It's a way to have certain people that maybe, uh, you know, will find it more interesting and top players that maybe don't find an incentive to just do these random scrims. And now they do because there's this, there's this you know, gambling side of it for them. And it's, it creates more incentive. The level of competition is higher because people are playing for something. So it matters more. I think it's a perfectly valid way of doing things and, and definitely a good way of making a tournament more interesting for sure when it's not tied to the official circuit and it's not tied to you know it's important because it qualifies to this or it gives these points whatever it is um especially when the price pool isn't really there just kind of naturally for tft right now but yeah the only iffy part of it is allowing viewers to stake into it allowing people that maybe you know gain their mom's credit card whatever it is all the, the usual problems there are and especially riot not wanting to be associated with that kind of gray area is is something that i find completely reasonable i think but uh, but policing it to the point where players can't just stake their own money and, and do these kind of money eight type type tournaments i think that shouldn't be a problem i think it's more just involving viewers and and yeah uh, not having a way to police that really yeah i mean look i'll, I'll start with like it says like my take on this specific topic um I'll, look I'll, before i say anything further incriminating I'll start by prefacing that uh, I in no way condone uh, selling, I guess, in, in its term comes from poker, but uh, I don't condone selling action in any mm -hmm. way, shape or form, which is essentially, you know, um, allowing players to sort of bet on your results in a tournament. Um, yeah, I don't condone that at all in any way. I think that like that is, yeah, that's just pure blatant gambling. Um, I'll say that like, I am of the side that like, I think that um, sort of pay-to-play tournaments um, present a fairly sort of clean and elegant solution to the funding issue um, that has plagued the TFT competitive scene of so many different sort of smaller regions, um, where basically players have been reliant on Riot to uh, entirely, either Riot or, you know, sort of, um, you know, essentially, you know, independent organizers who basically have to subsidize that prize pool purely out of their own pocket. Um, and even then, you know, those price will tend to not be very substantial because, again, it's coming out of their own pocket, right? I think that, like, that, yeah, so I guess when I saw that sort of, you know, the whole drama in that situation, I was very disappointed because I think that, like, that incident is going to set this back, like, at least one to two years in terms of development. I think that, like, now it's got this very negative sort of stigma attached to it. And I, I'm of the opinion, uh, again, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I, I think that there really needs to be um, a clear sort of distinction between what is essentially pure gambling and what is competition. Because there's a very big difference between, you know, betting money on whether a coin lands heads or tails versus betting money on whether, whether you know, you or I perform better in a, in a test of skill. I think that there's a, in my personal opinion, I think there's a very clear difference between competition and gambling. And, you know, mm. people can, I think it's perfectly valid for people to argue otherwise. But, you know, Especially coming from a Magic the Gathering background, and also having played a lot of poker myself, um, where you know skill is, uh, there is luck. However, skill is almost always the dominating factor in terms of who does well in these competitions. You know, um, so it's, I come from a world where sort of uh, playing, paying money to participate in a tournament is very sort of standard, very considered very very normal. Um, so to sort of to sort of 
know, come into this sort of TFT esports world where uh, I find out, you know, just in general, in esports in general, it's typically very frowned upon to charge players an entry fee for a tournament. It's quite interesting to sort of see the sort of uh, alternate perspective, I guess, on it. Um, but I, I guess that's mostly my take. Um, I'm very for sort of pay-to-play 20s, um, but I will, I will like emphasize, I am heavily against staking. I think that shit mm-hmm. is, uh, I think that shit is degenerate as fuck, and uh, I think it's, a, I think it's, it has no place um, competitive TFT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, All right. Cool. There is lots Sorry, and lots and lots and lots that we can talk. Like we could go around in circles on this. We can. Yeah. Talk about it from a moral perspective. We can talk about it from a poker perspective, a card game perspective, a magic perspective. You know, at the end of the day, I think um, there needs to be, as you mentioned, Sol, there needs to be a distinction between competition and, uh, gar- you know, garbage gambling, basically. And I think also that Riot will understandably want to protect a product of theirs and also will probably come up with a way to allow it to happen without ruining the without ruining its ability in the future just think um there will be less uh excitement around it in the future and i do yeah, think as well just just to kind of uh, summary up my, my thoughts on it that in a world where there is enough incentive to play TFC at the highest level possible throughout just the way that the circuit is planned out, there shouldn't even be a need for uh, this kind of uh, somewhat artificial incentivization of how, why do I want to play at a high level? Why do I need to create this high stakes tournament with, with like, you know, my own money involved or kind of the more gambling side of it or more viewer involvement from that side? Um, where like, if there's a circuit where ladder matters there's a lot of tournaments that matter there's constantly incentive for players to be playing at the high level and for them to feel rewarded for the time they're putting in then you don't really need to have this is more kind of artificial incentivization uh where there isn't a scene there isn't a way you're not being supported already i think in any especially for the top any streamers this is a problem that they have especially um with the eu circuit i think the top streamers and players are constantly incentivized uh, either through regional and national leagues and, and snapshots or ladder snapshots or tournaments happening that they are fulfilled to some extent and and feel rewarded for the time they're putting into TFT. Hmm. Yeah, very true. I think that where it's also interesting to consider when it comes to NA is they have a very significant monopoly on monetary viewership on Twitch. Mm -hmm. They make the most money off of their Twitch subscribers. They make the most money off of their Twitch viewership in general their organic viewership that they built up through twitch um Mm -hmm. and they you know and it's not a bad thing a lot of them are close personal friends you know soju will send ten thousand people to another one of his friends and that person will have the opportunity to retain that viewership and, and that viewership will stick around so i think they're already in a position of relative power and strength in that regard as well where um the money thing is sort of often could potentially fall on on deaf ears to some who would consider it a net like a negative a negative experience because Mm -hmm. they do have a monopoly on on sort of overall english-speaking tft content in that regard Mm -hmm. 
I mean, this is why I imagine the NA streamers maybe care more about this kind of stuff. It's because they're they care less about the, the circuit itself and the prize pool and the relevance of certain things outside of just like the own pride of wanting to be the best because it's so much more irrelevant to them because of what they maybe already earned from streaming and how kind of uh, their earnings are already set up in terms of streaming over competition, whereas in EU it's different. You don't have maybe that, that big mm -hmm. of an opportunity to be full-time with just streaming content and you care more about the prize pools, you care more about the you know qualifying and the competition side of it as well. So it creates this weird disparity, I think, for the top, top any streamers, which is like first world problems. I mean, you're, you're so well off from streaming that you don't care about competition as much or it doesn't matter to you as much not so relevant and what's why i think these like stake tournaments and different ways to to create content around tfc and competition uh start popping up which i think is not a bad thing but yeah it's i think it's clear why it's the case uh as well fascinating what an interesting uh what an interesting way to end this off uh guys yeah. You know, we could go on on talking about this forever, and potentially we will come back to this topic at a much later date. But that's pretty much going to end our question segment. Uh, I can see in the top right hand corner of my screen that we're almost at the two hour mark, which I think means we have done a pretty terrific job of podcasting today. Uh, I would first of all like to thank my wonderful co-host Sol. He's feeling a little bit under the weather, but he's managed to stick with us for this whole time and we we really appreciate it and of course we really appreciate you being here thank you thank you survived i pulled through it's all yeah right. you pulled through <laughs> exactly so would you please let all of our listeners and, and viewers know where they can find you oh yeah sure uh so on tft on twitch uh fridays uh, fr friday through to sunday 9 p.m aest usually have been streaming a little bit less consistently lately just because I've been really busy playing uh playing card game tournaments in real life. But uh that that is my regular schedule, so we'll see when it eventually gets back to normal. Guys, uh of course our podcast is not made possible without the people who agree to come and join us on episodes, and it is the absolute pleasure of mine to to say a big thank you to Panda for joining us today and for giving us a rundown on, on absolutely everything EU TFT. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's always great uh, coming out to different shows and be able to interact with different regions as well with you guys. I, I've seen your show a few times, but wasn't able to really speak to you or really get to know you guys uh, better. So it's always a great, great thing. And I guess you guys have a lot of uh, OC audience that maybe doesn't know me at all. So I think it's also great to try and kind of have this interconnection between regions. So absolutely my pleasure to be on here and be able to kind of interact uh, with the OC region a bit more as well. Thank you so much. Uh, Panda, please let everybody know, uh, if you don't mind, where they can where they can find you if they are looking for, for more content. I don't really do uh, traditional content stuff that most casters and, and content creators do. I'm not really on YouTube or, or Twitch, but uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Impetuous Panda. Uh, we opened up a specific Twitter account for the EMEA uh, scene as well. TFT Esports EMEA is the, the full handle. So definitely, if you're at all interested in EU and any updates for tournaments and you know some memes as well, I guess you could say, um, you will find on that account. It's being run by Digitech, and, and definitely now is the way to keep to, up to date with everything that's happening in EU. So I definitely recommend that as well. And I do have a YouTube channel, Impetuous Panda, but I don't use it at all. But I might if if I end up trying to, to do my own stuff uh, in terms of storylines and narratives for players in EU and kind of gangly style content with interviews and stuff, it'll be there. Um, so maybe check it out, but no promises. <laughs> Guys, look, you heard him. If he gets enough subscribers, he will definitely do it. That's exactly what he said to us. <laughs> Not so sure about that one. 
Uh, look, guys, it's been such a pleasure, of course, uh, for myself, Cutler. You can find me on Twitch, where this is streamed. Uh, whenever we do a podcast, you can find our podcast, of course, at The Rolldown on Twitter and on all good social and podcasting platforms, which is probably exactly where you guys are listening to this now. These are some really, really fun times for us. We've had a, a blast the last 29 fantastic episodes, and uh, we're really looking forward to some more. Uh, that's going to do it for us. So until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Roll Down podcast, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ciao, Elena. Bye.